Welcome to the Vons Podcast. I'm Dan. I'm Nick, and I'm not dying. Jeez. <laughs> Sorry. Literally. I go to hit record, and Nick starts coughing I and cough choking. once, and then you go, don't die, and then I start coughing more. So, yeah, thanks. How you yeah. doing, man? Uh, well, minus the fact that I'm not dying, I'm, I'm pretty good. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> so, I'm, you know, a new place, and I have been um, fighting with the heat. And I realized uh, that, and they nicely fixed this, but my rear door had no seal on it. Like there oh, was, nice. And so, you know, we had one, we had a night last night that we got down to like 31. So yeah. I was like, God, I came up, woke up this morning. I was like, you know, I'm a really cold and I don't <laughs> usually be. So I've been working on that and helping that. So that was, that was sort of my day today as far as having people in and out here. And the guy was coming in. He's like, he's like, I got to go get a tool. And I was like, hold on. What tool do you need? He's like, oh, I need some ratchets. I was like, just come on into my office. Here's <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so, Nick, yeah. Nick has a massive Milwaukee tool, <laughs> tool chest in his office. In my office. Yeah. Because yeah, I have no is, other place to keep it. So, yeah. yeah. It's a perfect place for it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, hey, How perfect. are you? I'm good, <laughs> good, man. I'm freezing just like you. It got yeah. really cold, but at least it's stopped. Uh, it stopped raining. And for, for now, snow. for yeah. now, yeah, well, it's got like five days ahead. We seem like we've got snow in the mountains, so yeah, I so can't. I gotta get up there. I took my new remote control car out. That's right, you got a remote control car for your birthday, like more normal forty-three year olds. God, yeah. I love that Shauna got you that. That's it's a so Traxxas awesome. Max, okay, which is um too fast for my driveway. Too what? fast? Oh, is it ripping up your driveway? Oh yeah, it rips up the driveway. It does oh, wheelies nice. wherever it goes, okay. and it's, it doesn't break as fast as I want. I think I almost threw it into the Audi today. I was gonna. I asked you that, <laughs> and you're like, "No, no, it breaks fine." I was like, "Are we sure?" Yeah, it was. Yeah, it, was, it, okay. it hit the leaves. And yeah, I yeah. Almost, I almost broke the car. Which, if you've seen one of those, and you've ever tried to drive one of those, like that'll hit you in the leg and break it. I'm yeah. not kidding. It, it'll do, it, when they say, you know, you always have those like scale speeds of 100 miles an hour. Oh, and yeah, kid, right. We did like five. Yeah. Yeah. No, this will do 60 and they mean 60. Jeez. So it's like a 60 mile an hour remote control missile. It's it's pretty fun. That's, I mean, what's it meant for? It's meant, it's meant for like a, a it's dirt called track? A, it's called a basher, which okay. is like you oh, can just like. Meant to be taken out. Yeah. Your, yeah your you cabs. like literally throw it off a jump as high as your house. Got so it. Okay. Throw, jump it over oh, the house. That's okay. what it's made for. It's, I have seen people do that stuff. Yeah. Like, okay. Yeah, pretty cool. So anyway. what you're saying is we need to buy a ramp or build a ramp. Yes. Okay. Got it. I okay. need a small backhoe. There we go. Yeah. For the right. property. Okay. But anyway. Fair enough. Um, speaking of tools, though, you're giving me a good segue. Yeah. We have our Carter Automotive Group tip of the week. We were talking about this in an upcoming episode as well with the Rimmers, but. Uh, oh, that's had, right. It hasn't come. I was like, I was yeah, like no, we talked it. about it yeah, last yeah, week. Okay, yeah. yeah, got it. So Nick can tell us this one. I can. Yeah. yeah. What is the trick besides needing a very expensive big ass wrench to taking off the magnesium center lock wheels off a of Porsche 959? You need, that's easy. You need the car key. That's right. And I have, I, it was, that was so random that you asked that question. Um, you have to pry off, there's a cap that goes over the center and then you literally have to stick the car key in the middle and unlock the center cap so that you can then put the wrench, the big ass wrench and cup in there and, and a huge, what is a fulcrum to get it yeah. to break loose. Yeah. Yeah. So not only do you have very, very expensive wheels, you have mm -hmm. a very, very expensive wrench from Porsche. Yeah. And you're like, why is it such an expensive wrench? Because it comes with the car. Yeah. Now it does not. Now you just get the little lug adapter and you go to. A oh, you mean in the new, the new <laughs> yeah, GT3. Any, yeah. Okay, any, yeah. The new Porsches with the new center locks. Okay. Which look cool, but are terrible for the street. Yeah. <laughs> so, which makes sense. Yeah, they, I don't think Porsche really intends you to drive those on the street that much. I think they want you to go out racing. Well, if you look at McLaren and Ferrari, no center well, locks except for like a few of their cars. True, true. Yeah. I mean, Lamborghini's got center locks on most of the cars now. I think most of the higher end Aventadors. Yeah, that that's on. odd yeah. considering they are a Porsche, Audi, Volkswagen. Product. Oh, okay, fine, good. Pro okay, fine. <laughs> point point doesn't. taken. Anyway. Point taken. Yes. Anyway, our guest this week can probably tell us a little more about the 959 and that big ass expensive wrench. Larry Volum, welcome to the show. It's good to have you, man. Thanks, guys. Glad to be on. Larry has uh, is a, a probably one of the founding members of Avance down in the Portland area. I think he was around long before even Avance was what Avance was. I think he was beating on Adam on on on, on it. Am I correct? I am. Yeah, Adam was sniffing around in Portland area, and I have a bit of a collection, and few people knew about it. So, yes, he contacted me, and we started talking early, and I was very excited that he'd uh, bring his vision for a an enthusiast club rather than a mark. Uh, club down to our area and i've seen it flourish sure and i enjoy going to the events and uh had some nice group meetings here at my my car showing cars and talking to people and it's working out really well yeah you have quite the background i was admiring there's a blue nsx behind you and then hiding no, no, in the no. corner no, for no. our audience that can't see this 
No, it's not an. Nope. It's not oh, an it's, NSX. It's fuzzy. What is that? This is. What is it? This is the new '90s oh. collector car. Do yeah, you know what that is. Okay, name that car based on the headlight. Well, that's why I thought it was the NSX. From the, it's a little fuzzy on our side, but uh, it. Uh, yeah, I'm. 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 I'm blanking on this. Like, I, don't, I don't know. I, I feel like it's going to be one of those aha moments when he says it. But yeah. Yes. I only so had a corner of the headlight, and I thought it was NSX. 1996 Fiat Coupe. So this is from Europe. They're not. They never got imported oh, wow. to the U.S. Now that they're 25 yeah. years old, you can bring things into okay. the U.S. without a lot of hassle. Unless you live in California, and then then you're out of luck. But I'm in Oregon, and these and cars it's all are hassle. Yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. These cars are inexpensive relative to their performance, and uh, they're beautiful. Sometime I'd love to show you more about this this car, and it's got a, a five cylinder turbo, 220 horse, front wheel drive. Uh, you know, it's, it was their performance car from the mid 90s, and it's designed by Pininfarina. So and uh, Chris Bangle, actually, who went on to do BMW work, uh, he's the one who's credited with penning the side profile, which you can't see from there, has a very distinct character. So, it, it, uh, I mean, I was initially thinking, th th you're talking about your connection to BMW, like it looks a lot like. What is the BMW? It's a, it's a two door coupe where the doors slide into the body. Like I was thinking, kind of something right. like that. It's a Z. No, this is not Z three. It's a Z one, I think, those, or something like that. Yeah. Yes, the Z one. Those came later. The one that slides this, in. This is yeah, this is Z one. Yeah. The Z one. Yeah. The Z one. Yeah, yeah. it, it's it's completely different than that. Yeah. Uh, some sometime, I'd love to you know. No, no, pictures I know that, that. That was just the first thing that came to mind when. Yeah. 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 Okay. And. Interesting. Should you, should you well, Larry, I want to go back a little bit. Obviously, you know, we always talk to our guests about where this this kind of car bug came from. Like, you know, did you grow up in a in a car loving family, and, and were you the kid with the uh, three hundred Hot Wheels and things like that? Actually, I was not. Um, as a young man in the late sixties okay. and early seventies, uh, I was making and building model airplanes, and I was you know flying stunts and you know remote control instead of cars. Right, I was flying airplanes and. And then uh, I think I translated that ultimately into driving and racing because I feel driving a car is a little bit like flying it, but you're on the ground. And so as a young man, I was, uh, you know, thought I was a hotshot kind of teenager guy, but actually people kept saying, you know, you need to go get trained and things like that, which of course they were right. So I did that a little bit later and that started my career of driving on the track, you know, track days, racing and so on, teaching. Uh, in 1980 or so, at Bob Bondurant School. Yeah, you have quite the history track. on the track. Yeah, I've been driving for a long time. So what was your first race car? What was the first car that you went out on the track and tried to try to drive and, and thinking? And I mean, a teenager that thought he was hot stuff in a, in a car, that's that's so unoriginal. Un, un, un like, you know, <laughs> I know. aren't I, we all like that sometimes? <laughs> that's, that's, that was my point. It was not unique. Uh, yeah. But I, yeah. <laughs> I was unique in the, I was unique in the sense that I listened to uh, people who said you know you should go get trained and they're exactly right. So I often am asked the question when people look at my cars, which one's the fastest? And I go, well, right now they're all zero, they're identical, and a baby couldn't even start any of these cars. The car is not fast; it's the driver that's fast. And then eventually. If you're a great driver, you're a Formula One driver or something, you could jump, jump into any of these cars on a track and say, which one actually is fastest? Because you have a reference driver. But uh, <laughs> it turns out that <laughs> driving effectively is much more important than having a fast car, in my experience. So that was my first training. That was with Datsun 240Zs at uh, Sears, Sears Point. And then uh, that progressed into, I had a, a Porsche 77 911S, I started driving on the track, and in Southern California, there's something called the Porsche Owners Club, not the PCCA, um, but the Owners Club, and they did a lot of track events at uh, Riverside and Willow Springs and so on. So I started, and also a lot of autocrosses that were more like track events. <laughs> they, they set up and did laps with the autocross instead of one lap things. So they were a real driving enthusiast club, and I got to do a lot of time trialing you typically two-day events, um, so they were fairly serious. People would trailer cars in, and there was fabulous prizes, and you know there was a lot of 
serious driving going on in time trialing, which was a great way to learn how to drive just quick. And then eventually later I applied that to racing wheel to wheel. So you grew you obviously grew up down in California, correct? Actually, no. I am an no. Oregon, Oregonian. So born and bred okay. here, but I did, did spend some uh, tour of duty in my college years down in uh, Long Beach, California. Ah, okay. And that's very central to okay. All right. the whole car story, actually, because especially in the 80s, um, L.A. was just, is the car city. And everything was being, you know, imported, the gray market activities and fancy cars and Beverly Center and Beverly Hills and um, Newport Beach, you know, all, it was just this epicenter of all the cars that we all read about in the magazines. They were all there. So I was in the thick of those things and could access some of those places and see what these cars were like. And that kind of got me going a little bit. But this would be in the early 80s. Okay. Yeah, I'm interested in the career and what took you down the road of racing. Well, what made you stick with it? I mean, you went all the way to Formula 1000. I think there's a little bit of a delay in our audio too, by the way. Sorry. That's okay. So, yes. Driving on large tracks like Riverside, Willow Springs, Laguna Seca with the owner's club um, had a lot of fun. And actually, you can see in the background, you mentioned the 924, that car I got in the mid-80s. Um, that's one of 55 um, lightweight specials that Porsche was trying to build to kill the 911 and prove that nine front engine, uh, you know, 924 cars were, or 44s were going to be the future because they were really planning to end of life the 911 after 20 years. So, uh, and as a collector, I actually <laughs> appreciate that fact. And that's why I like having a, a mid 80s 911 and the mid 80s 924 GTS, which they were, they were at odds with each other because they were trying to kill the 911, but then they realized, no, there is no Porsche if there's no 911. So they carried on, but they also made a fabulous uh, track car and Audubon car in the 944. And so I started running that one in time trials. I mean, it, it amazes me that Porsche would ever think to do that. Of, of, I, I mean, <laughs> that story has come across this podcast a couple of times, and it's just the idea that they would think, oh, well, we need to sunset this project, the 911 project, and, and obviously as long as it has gone now and the iconic shapes and things like that and, and go with something like that. But, I mean, obviously, I mean, you, you did you buy that car new in the 80s from Porsche? I did not. Um, I had a good friend who is also a friend of Avant's, and he had many Porsche friends, and one of them was on the East Coast who had bought five of the 55. So an American brought five of the 55 924 GTSs. <laughs> and uh, he's quite of a collector, obviously, and could do what he wants. And uh, so I got one of his cars from him. So it had almost no miles, quite new uh, condition. And my friend and I jumped in it and drove across the country in the car. It wasn't quite a cannonball run, although there was moments when we were going... Um, you know, faster than posted speeds. And uh, yeah, the car is phenomenal at, at high speeds and uh, got us there. That's awesome. Yeah, I picked up a 911 Turbo S in uh, Delaware and drove it all the yeah. way home in three days. My, my recollection course, is that- The speed limit the, the whole way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I hear. It's, it is funny because this is an enormous country, which you only find out by driving. When you fly over it, you don't realize- and uh, there's really nothing between the Mississippi and San Francisco. If you're in a car on the highway, you realize there's a huge expanses with, with nobody and nothing uh, between them. But it's great for um, motoring in a, a brisk way when nobody's watching. Oh, yeah. So many good back yeah. roads. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, anyway, so this, this talk us through your collection a little bit on. Well, I was Sorry. just going to say the 924 led me to learning a little bit about high-performance driving. But then eventually, also in the mid-80s, a friend was racing an IMSA GTU. And since I had the driving experience, but not the racing experience, I started racing in IMSA GTU, which is an endurance race, so as a co-driver. And so that was my first actual racing wheel-to-wheel -wheel was at Watkins Glen in uh, 1987. And that kind of got the juices flowing to do more uh, you know, competitive driving. But I'm not that interested in going all over the country. And since I'm on the, in the Northwest, I focus mostly on this region for my driving. Excellent. Would you talk about, as a collector, I think we've talked to many collectors, 
how do you look for a car? What, 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 you know, let, let's, let's take the Fiat, for example. What, I mean, what, was, what, draw, what drew you to that car and, and what, what was the process of finding it and getting it here kind of thing? Yeah, well, so I mentioned LA in the 80s was the gray market. So actually I worked with um, gray market guys and was getting cars in the 80s that were coming to the US that were brought into the gray market rules. And in the later 80s, that got shut down and it became nearly impossible to bring a car from Europe that wasn't pre-approved and emissions and crash standards and so on. So there was a heyday in the 70s and 80s where a lot of cars were flowing in that could sort of slip through the gaps. And LA was a place where a lot of that was going on. And so um, I'll start with the first car that I did actually get from Europe was the Peugeot 205 Turbo 16. And so I've been interested in the Renault R5 Turbo 2, which is a fabulous kind of European uh, little runaround car that was being imported by guys in LA, for example. And they were just up the street. You know, it's only like an hour drive to get to uh, where they were. And so I went and dropped in and sure enough, they were doing the R5 Turbo, but they also had a Turbo 16. And so I started researching that. It was a brand new thing. Nobody in the U.S. knew about it except for reading maybe a magazine article about Group B, which was the new uh, thing. And they only had to make 200 cars, but they had to be um, streetable because they had to sell the 200. They couldn't sell 200 race cars. They just, it's not that big a market. So the Peugeot was really fabulous because being in the Northwest, it's four-wheel drive, mid-engine, probably the most advanced car in its moment uh, because it had a very sophisticated suspension and uh, the, the way the differentials were set up was advanced and mid-engine and it's had state-of-the-art technology. Um, so that was a really fascinating car. And by the way, it was only like $30,000, which was the same price as a Porsche 911, which is crazy to me to make 200 super special, <laughs> almost, you know, one-off cars. And then they had to sell them. So I knew that they were at a discount. And so I got interested in like, well, hey, this is a deal. These are really cool cars. They're obviously subsidizing because of the marketing budget uh, for the racing. And of course, they did sell a lot of cars uh, based on their race success. So it worked out for them. But it worked out for me because I got a car at a discount, but, you know, probably by, you know, multiples. It should have been like five times that much if they were just selling like they do now, amazing cars that have unique technology. They charge what it costs to make a car and have a profit. And these cars are one of the rare moments when they sold something, you know, the marketing department just said, you know, just flush them. Uh, you know, we're not trying to make money by selling the 200. So that was my first uh, exposure to gray market and these unique cars. And that got me interested in general in European cars, cars that are not in the U.S. Because there's a lot of Porsches and a lot of this and a lot of that. And you can get a nice one, but they, they've been here forever. So I'm interested, partly you ask, but what cars and why? Well, I'm interested in cars that never really got into the U.S. and that are still valid, wonderful cars. You know, they're not uh, one-offs or prototypes. They're real cars like this, the Fiat here that you're looking at. Uh, but it's also over here, it's really an eye-catcher. And the public loves it. Actually, I just have it parked around town and people are always like, what, you know, <laughs> what is that? You know, it's because it's sort of normal, but also you know, obviously unique and unusual. Even kids who don't know anything about cars will kind of like, what is that? <laughs> so it's sort of exciting to think that they don't need to know anything about the car to think, oh, this is an interesting thing. So, Well, like you were saying, I mean, obviously anything that Pininfarina puts pen to paper is going to be gorgeous and, and have a have a flowing body. So or at least interesting. Uh, yeah. Definitely interesting. But I mean, I think so many people these days are, are used to Fiat and they're used to just the little Fiat 500s running around and they think yeah. that Fiat's been here for years. It really hasn't been. It, it was yeah. obviously here. And I think when they, they were bringing cars in and what the, you may be able to tell me this, Larry, like in the 70s and 80s, right? But then they stopped for a long time. Right. They did. And so this is jumping forward in terms of my collecting because I started with the Group B cars and those things. But you mentioned this car that's 25 years old. I'm still interested in bringing in something that's unique and interesting and kind of normal, but also really cool. So as a, I'm a designer, industrial designer, and I've, I'm a student of who were the designers of the car. So Pininfarina is one house that does Ferraris and beautiful things, right? Chris Bangle 
that did actually did the Fiat Coupe. He's also was people love or hate them, hate him for what he did to BMWs. But this is an early work before he went to BMW, and it's a very charming car if you look at it in design. And then I also have a Lancia Integrale, and that's another car designed by Giorgetto Giugiaro. And so the interesting thing is, and actually, if you guys look to, over here to that black car, can you tell what that black? I can barely is? see it. It's kind of out of frame. Yeah. Uh, no. It's okay. So here. this, <laughs> I'll give a clue. There's the there's the hood. Looks like Alpha. Yeah. So this is yeah. This is okay. Alpha Romeo GTV, and it's again from the oh yeah yeah okay. from the yeah. mid nineties. And the interesting thing is, uh, for me as a collector and as a like, I like to drive cars. So I like cars that are interesting and fun to drive. This the Alpha is a two hundred and twenty horsepower. Um, V6. This particular one actually is a is a turbo, two liter turbo one, and then the blue car is a is a, a two liter five cylinder, and then the Lancia Integrale is a, a two hundred twenty horse four cylinder turbo. The interesting thing is, as a just as a collector, is that all three of these cars are on the same platform from Fiat. Fiat owns you know many companies, including Alfa and Lancia and Fiat mm. and Ferrari, and it makes a lot of sense that at a certain point they said, let's have a kit of parts that everyone has to use instead of designing each car from scratch and spending all the money to make a car that's unique. So they had the type two chassis. And so both, for example, the Fiat, the Alpha and the Lancia are on the type two chassis. And Fiat also made a modular motor as a four cylinder and a five cylinder it could be turbo or normally aspirated. And so they put those motors in these various cars across the brands as well. So the Lancia has actually the Fiat four cylinder turbo but with the, uh, with the Lancia um, cam covers. So anyway, it's a, to me, it's an interesting thing to have huh. where they did very different things with the same material. And so like the Alpha is very much a, an Italian Alpha kind of feeling thing. Beautiful Momo seats and leather interior. And it's, it's an Alpha designed by Pininfarina. So actually the, the very dramatic styling, it's not uh, common. This is not a generic looking car, although it's, I think a very elegant car. And then the Fiat, same material, but then they had a different designer to kind of do a different treatment. And then the uh, Lancia Delta is designed by Giugiaro and it has its own signature kind of angular um, aesthetic to it. So each one has a, uh, an excellent provenance in terms of designer, but, and they're working with the same materials basically, but they end up with three completely different cars. So as a collector, I love to just drive one and then the other and then the other because they're kind of the same thing, but they're actually considerably different. Which one do you think drives the best? Oh, you know, you know that's a terrible question. <laughs> Everyone wishes your favorite child. <laughs> um, they each have character that just makes them each really fun You were really saying that they're, now that they're 25 years uh, old. Lancia uh, Integrale is a fabulous car, and there's a reason why those are, you know, going for fairly big dollars and are quite popular as, you know, right, current collectors for these 80s and 90s cars. But I would say that the Alpha and the Fiat also have tremendous merit. You know, they go like stink and uh, they're real civilized cars, but they're beautiful and unique. Uh, you show up at Cars and Coffee, nobody's gonna have, you know, an Alpha GTV, but it's not a prototype. <laughs> and it's not the old Alpha, like, nightmare. I think these are relatively modern cars. The one thing that makes them not modern is that they don't have any electronics that are doing traction control and stuff. Like they might have ABS brakes and that's it. And for a lot of people I know, they're enjoying kind of that simpler time when the cars are not sucked down by just electronics in interfering with your uh, inputs all the time, which most modern cars do. I mean, it, it, they're absolutely beautiful and amazing cars. How so? You started collecting obviously in the '80s and have been collecting some of the, your cars. Have you you've kept for over 35 years? Do cars tend to leave your collection, or are you a person that when you acquire a car, it's going to stay with you until your demise? Unfortunately, <laughs> well, I generally hang on to them. You're right. Although in the early days, I um, acquired numerous of the Group B homologation specials, and there's more cars that you can't see. Uh, in, your, in the image here, but that included things like the Audi Sport Quattro and the Ford RS200 and Lancia Delta S4 and Citroen BX4 TC. So I, at a certain point, decided, well, if I'm going to do this, why don't I just get them all uh, for completeness sake? 
And so I was a steward <laughs> and an owner of sure. like a complete set of uh, Group B homologation specials for a long time. I even owned a, an RS200 uh, Evolution, which was one of the very limited cars that they were going to run <laughs> in, the, in the next season uh, to try and, they had a, a better motor and a big, strong gearbox, and they thought they would show up in 1987 and take no prisoners because they had sort of the best dynamics and aerodynamics up for Group B type cars. Uh, sadly, 1987 did not come because Group B got canceled. Yep. And if you research the, the killer bees and so on, that yeah, they decided this is too yep. fast, too crazy. And uh, they went out on a notorious note. Uh, so you asked this question about, do I keep cars? So I have recently started selling some cars because I decide things that I'm not going to drive, um, I'm not, I don't want to just have them to look at in general. I'd rather jump into each, you know, car a different day and be able to just drive it. And uh, so some of the cars, like a Metro 6R4 is very much of a race car. And also as a racer, I'm not going to take it to the track because I have a real race car with real races to win. I'm not going to spend time and money on a thing that is <laughs> not at all for that. And, you know, why, what does it prove to just, you do it once and then you say you did it. So I got rid of some cars. And the other thing that I have started doing though is, I'm interested in pairing and things that you can't see in the image. But for example, I have the Peugeot Turbo 16 was the first car I got. I've also started looking at, well, what else, what did they do? What were they trying to sell? Well, the 205 model was the anchor to Peugeot's future. It was the new model designed by Pininfarina and in in-house. And it's a sort of smaller than a Golf. And it was their home market and world market anchor to their entire future the 205 model, and they introduced the little Econo one, the GTI, and the Turbo 16 all at once to the French press and said, here's our line of 205s. It's, you know, it's very complete, and we only made 200 of the Turbo 16s, but, you know, it's one of the 205s. So I have been searching and have found a uh, 205 from 1984 GTI, and it turns out it's tremendously fun, very lightweight, beautiful. Um, it defined GTIs in Europe more than Volkswagen GTI in terms of performance and fun, fun to drive little car. So I'm finding that it's interesting to find the car that they were trying to sell and have one of those to drive around as well. So I have a little companion to the super rally car and then the normal car uh, from the original day. And that's, and that happens in several cases. Very cool. I, I love that style of collecting. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. I was going to ask you the red car in the corner. Is that a Evo? Uh, that you, yeah, you're right. That is a uh, yeah, the one on the end, yeah, next to the next. So that is a car. Oh, yes, <laughs> yes. This this one I just had out on the track. Um, in fact, it was uh, it was a nice rainy track day for Quattrofest, the Audi Northwest event, and wish more Avance members had come out because it's not just an Audi thing, although. You know, I infiltrated with the Mitsubishi. So this is basically like a 2000. Um, it's called the uh, Tommy Mackinac 6.5. And so it's a, quite a rare car, largely too, because it is... <laughs> yep, I'm just <laughs> ruling over that. <laughs> it's left-hand drive. Just the well. Tommy Mackinac. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know. No, no, you know. <laughs> well, well, I'll tell you, many of the Tommy Mackinans, um, they, they made quite a few actually. <sighs> But they're all right-hand drive. So this is one that came out of New Zealand, actually, that is a, a left-hand drive, you know, from, from original car. And uh, it's really just a fabulous, fabulous car. And so I'll tell you a little funny story. Why do I have this car besides it's a rally car and so on? So the Group B cars are rally cars that started me on the rally thinking. And so actually into the later 90s, I got into, because of the gray market importation, the guy who was doing the Peugeot and the R5, he started doing the Ford RS Cosworth, Escort Cosworth, which is very interesting car with that big high uh, wing. Uh, it's yeah. one of the first street cars actually to generate downforce in just by, you know, as sold. So anyway, that was a great car, interesting car. And of course it was example of the Group A and Group N cars that came after Group B. So they had to limit it to some two to 300 horsepower, and they had to make 5,000 of them. So they couldn't make, you know, a mid-engine crazy 
car like the Group B cars. They had to make something they could sell and support. And Lancia Integrale, which you guys are looking at the screen. <laughs> so, so the Integrale yeah. uh, was the car that came right after Group B got canceled. And Lancia had this wonderful four-wheel drive car that's, that was compact and had excellent differentials and, and wonderful, you know, good power and everything. And it dominated for six years in this post-Group B world. And then other people tried to compete, including Ford with their uh, Escort Cosworth. And that was a great car. Um, I was using it every day and I have two uh, kids and they were small in the day and they could jump in the back and I would drive them to school. Because it's, you know, it's a kid carrier, you know, for most people. If you have one, <laughs> it works fine. But it's a two-door. And as the kids got a little bit bigger, a few years later, uh, it was like they were having to crawl into the back seat and they didn't really fit that well. And I'd been tracking things and the Mitsubishi came across my radar and it's like, well, there it is. This is a four, four door um, car that's kind of like the Ford, except even you know, a little cooler and the kids will fit right in the back just fine. So, so that's part also of my collecting <laughs> is practicality. And it's a great car. You can drive the kids to school and then um, you know, charge off to parts unknown. Yeah, that was a dream car of mine for a long time. It still is in its well, own right. I mean, as being being a child, you know, growing up in high school in, in the 90s and things like that, I mean, it's yeah. it was that between that and, the, you know, the, the bug-eyed WRX and things like that. But, uh, right. yeah, you just don't see those. Like I said, I mean, it's it's a, it's such a defining factor, even sitting in the corner. But, I mean, yeah. obviously our listeners can't see it, but, like, just the, the camera angle we had, we, Dan and I just had the rear pillar and the and the wing, and I'm, I'm, I'm literally writing out messages to Dan. I'm like, is that what I think it is? Yeah. <laughs> right. so, yeah. Such right. a cool collection. I wanted to ask you a little bit. Um, you've you have one of the the more rare cars that was designed for Group B and never got to race, and that's the 959. And um, do you still have that car for one? I do. You notice the red car that's underneath the 924. You it's it, the not, video's compressed, so everything's very pixelated, so it's hard to see. But I was like, Larry, tell us a little bit about the 959, which now I can see in the background very clearly, oh, <laughs> at least a little so, hint of it. Yes, yes, yes. It's just a hint. So I got the 959 new, and it's a kind of an obvious car because it is technically a Group B car. The prototype was called the Group B, and it's a fabulous thing. And I was able to finagle access to buying one, which was not trivial because there's only a few to be had. And so I was a you know, lucky camper to have access to one. And I've owned the th car the whole time. It's, it's both a dream and a nightmare. If you talk to any 959 owners, they'll say, you know, it costs $10,000 every year that you want to like fire it up and go anywhere, there's something has failed or then it's always very expensive. So they're, they're not a highly reliable, not a problematic car. They, but when it's working, it's quite fantastic. And so my particular car has been upgraded by the factory to their stage two horsepower and turbos and things. And so it's a, instead of a 450 horse, it's a 550 horse or so. So it goes pretty good. And, uh, Last time I had it out on the track, just a month ago, um, it feels like a little short ratio GTI, except it's, you know, hurtling through space quite rapidly because you have to stay on the boost in that car. Everyone knows this. The sequential turbocharging idea was a good one, but it didn't really do anything. And so if you're not, if you're under 5,000 RPM, nobody is home. Nothing is happening. And if you're at 5,000 RPM, it's <laughs> launching to seven in, in two seconds. And so you're shifting all the time because it has tremendous power as long as you're on boost. Uh, so I would comment on the 959 that my historic view now, and the guys are looking at the 924 GTS, the nine, 1985 uh, 911 Carrera, and then the 959, they're all kind of the same year. And they are central, I think, to Porsche's um, history because Porsche wanted to end the 950 or the uh, 911 model. Uh, 20 years later, they were gonna make something new but then they realized, no, we have to make the 911. So the 959 is this exercise in making the 911 not old, but in the future. So the 959 is a technology demonstrator that goes way beyond any other car of its day. And I would say, I argue, this is the first modern car, if you define modern as uh, a car that has electronics that are interpreting what your intentions are and fixing and adjusting things. And so that's very common. If you look at the Rivion, uh, right now, four motors, it's just a sensor that says I want 100%. Well, 
there is no throttle string, there is no motor going. The computer's interpreting what would be 100% in this situation. What are, you, what are you trying to do? So the 959 is the first car, as far as I know, that does that level of uh, sensing what you're trying to do and then interfering with what you ask for and trying to make it do what it thinks is correct. And so it has computer-controlled differentials that allow power to be thrown to kind of any one or two or three or four wheels in a certain way. And you can imagine if you threw all the power just to the left side, even if the wheel is straight, the car is going to turn because you make those wheels go faster than the other ones. So it's the car can be made to handle, and Porsche realized this. And the other Group B cars had mechanical differentials that kind of tried to do something, but they were not actively controlled. So Porsche, being Germans, I think they said, you know, we need to have complete control, so we're going to control all of the differentials and throw power where we think it's most useful and make the car do exactly what we think it should do. So what they made is the first modern car in that sense. It has tremendous, you can, grandma could drive it, it's very docile and slow. You can also you know, race, take a Nürburgring and it's ridiculously fast. It's just a, one car did everything. So it was the most extreme you know, car and the, really the future of hypercars and so on, starting in the late 80s. And that saved Porsche because by the way, they made a 911 that could not be spun. <laughs> which is seems <laughs> trivial, but uh, 911s were famous to being widowmakers, especially the turbo. People would spin out. And so I think part of their agenda was to make a car that we're going to manage the traction and just make the car do, you know, do what we want. We're not going to let it get out of control. So it's incredibly difficult to make the car get out of, uh, out of control because it, uh, it's just actively <laughs> managing what the wheels are doing all the time. And that's what modern cars now do. And if you talk to any modern Porsche driver, you'll say, yes, you know, those the electronics make them successful. You can drive the cars very hard and you go very fast and you have way too much horsepower and way too much this and way too much that, but the computer basically makes it, you know, successful. And these 90s cars that I'm looking at, you have to limit it to two or 300 horsepower because if you have four or 500 horsepower without all that electronics, you very quickly get into trouble and uh, it's just too much. So nowadays the cars have the computer to basically make everything interpreted and successful. And the 959 is the first of that sort of car. That's funny, yeah, because my, I've driven, it's fun, of all the Porsches I haven't driven, it's an air-cooled turbo. I've, oh. I've never driven, well, now I take that back. I've driven a 993 twin turbo. So yeah, but that's not the same thing because that was all wheel drive and that was, you know, quite a bit later, not as, not as want to kill you as the rest of them, but I've driven the 959. I've driven 944 turbos, and the, yeah, the 959 was dramatically easy to drive. Surprisingly easy, except for nobody told me about the compound first gear, which I found out the hard way, and I was like, "Why isn't it going?" <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But, well, and I mean that, and that car is is somewhat big up in the Pacific Northwest because I think yeah. well, Gates tried to get one. Was one of the first people to try to get one, and you know, so a lot of people know of the of that car, not necessarily his car, but that car and the stories behind it and right, the gears. It was in every magazine. It was in every magazine, and and then the, and then him talking to people, and I mean the the, the stories of true stories and not true stories of that yeah. car sitting in port and not you know and getting it in here, and then obviously, who is it that does all the work now down? Is it Bruce Campa? Canapa. Canapa that right. does all that work down in California on them now, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And so he he has a Bruce Canapa has been working with those cars for a long time, and I know Bruce, yeah. and I think his his approach is this car should be a modern supercar. There's a lot of emissions problem if you're trying to certify it that with the standard Porsche implementing the Bosch injection. And so Bruce did a lot of things to basically improve the car. So you had a you know a new injection system that where you could manage the emissions and you put on a real exhaust and you put on modern turbos that just work better and you fix all the little things that Porsche didn't get to. Because if you realize they only made like 300 of these, I think, and total, and that's just a prototype run. And they didn't finish the cars. They just got them far enough that they could move on. And what they learned was how to make the Carrera 2 and 4 and that, that 964 and the nine, um, 993 after that. And so I would just comment that the cars look like a 911, but from a structural standpoint, the, they, they're completely different. The 959 is the prototype of whole new suspension and steering geometry and traction and four-wheel drive. And it's like everything is new in that car. And it just looks kind of like an old 911. And the old 911 has a very distinct character in terms of how the engine works and the feeling of the steering and so on. It's, it's, 
it's very specific because it's done and it's physically, you know, mechanically a certain way. And that when after the 959, they learned, hey, we're going to go to power steering, we're going to go to ABS brakes, we're going to do all these things that required modifying how the car works. And it may be better and faster, but I would also say it's not the original 911 experience anymore because they changed so many things to make the, to improve the car uh, mechanically. Um, you know, we, we know today, like on some of these top end cars, you know, LaFerraris and things like that, the buying process. But like I said, you reached out to Porsche when you found out about this car, like, I mean, minus the, 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 the process of trying to get the car to be legal in the United States. I mean, like you said, there didn't make many of them and they weren't exactly offering them. Did you, did you go to Porsche or did they come to you? No, no, they didn't come to me. I'm not that caliber of Porsche owner or enthusiast historically, but I did have a friend who did have contacts and that was the way in was through a friend as opposed to my own work. Although some cars I did get uh, through my own uh, resources. So I originally got the Turbo 16 in LA and I asked the importer, um, hey, the RS200 Ford sounds very interesting too. Could you find, maybe you could bring one of those? And he kept saying, sure, but he never did anything. So funny story, this is just mid eighties. Um, I have a phone. One night I just called London because I knew it was built in England and just called London Information said, I need the number for Ford Motor Company. And they go, okay, here it is. And then I called that number and I said, hi, I'm interested in buying one of your cars. It's called the RS200. And they're like, a what? And wait a minute, does anybody know what an RS200 <laughs> is? And then somebody said, oh, got to call this guy, Bob Howe. And so they gave me his number. And so like, you know, five minutes later, I call him. He's the guy who's managing the sales of these cars. And I was put, you know, immediately in, in touch with a guy who I could actually buy the car from. And it just took a few phone calls. So it's sometimes much easier than you think. <laughs> just just do it, basically, as Nike would say. That's funny. Yeah, you can accomplish a lot by asking. <laughs> that's that's pre-internet. I'm impressed. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, like, this, hey, is, this is I just, way... I just, I just want somebody to sell me a car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now with the internet... the simplicity of it all. <laughs> yeah. With the internet, it's true, we have it a little bit easier, although that can very easily misrepresent, you know, practically everything. And so I've been learning through these cars that I've been sourcing the last two years, using the internet and COVID times when I could sit at home and just reach out. Uh, it turns out there's a lot of stuff that is not as it looks in the pictures. And so I found that it's important to both identify a quality car and have a quality agent who actually is, they say, over in Europe and can actually inspect things and figure out, you know, is this really any good? Because I guarantee you could polish up, you know, a rusty anything or repaint it. It's still made of rust and could be terrible underneath, but it looks shiny yeah. in the internet picture. So we all have to be careful when we're buying used cars, and especially if you're buying 25-year or older cars. You know, um, it's it's not unusual that they have problems that uh, you can't see on online. So buyer beware. Yeah, for sure. Is there anything coming up or out there that you still, I mean, they're not coming up. It could be just a car out there that you've, you've wanted. You, what's your unicorn, the hero you haven't met yet? There's a 959 sitting in this man's garage. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well. <laughs> Maybe yeah. a 288, 288 GTO to match. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not here. I will just turn the camera. You know what that is. Okay, so that, here. Is there a Volkswagen? Yes. No, no. Yes. Now, you know what that is? That's a Volkswagen Scirocco. And so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I had when, an 84. So I was like, is that yeah. an early Scirocco? Yeah. Yeah, this, this is the Mark I. And so again, as a collector and a historian kind of a thing, I'm interested in the originals that started the, the future. So like I talked about the Peugeot, started Peugeot's future design. They made a new factory, they had a new design, and they had to sell it. That was their company's future was on the line, making 205 a success. So... If you think about Volkswagen, they were making, you know, 30s, 40s, 50s engineering cars, rear engine, air-cooled, flat, boxer motors, and derivatives thereof. So come the late uh, 60s and 70s, they said, wait a minute, we need to design our future. We need to get modern. And so who did they talk to? My favorite designer, Giorgetto Giugiaro. And he basically, the Italian, was hired by the Germans to design their future. And he penned the Golf, which is sort of a little taller the Scirocco, which is a little sort of more of a hot rod. And they also had the Dasher, which was a four-door, a little bit bigger car. So he designed exactly the opposite of what Volkswagen had been making. So instead of rear drive, it's front drive. 
you know, front wheel drive and the engine's transverse mounted and it's this modern four cylinder and you know, the packaging, everything was new and different. And of course, they're still making this car 50 years later, that Scirocco is a, in uh, verbally is the same car they're making, <laughs> front engine transverse, you know, they're just now moving to making electric cars, which are, uh, you know, actually different because of how you package the drivetrain and so on. But anyway, so this car was uh, a car that I recently purchased out of Switzerland because there's almost none left. They're all rusted out and gone. But in 1977, the first car I ever bought was new was a Scirocco. So that was my, my first car, my first love in terms of cars. And I spent a lot, doing a lot of miles in that car. And then of course left it for, for dad many years ago. And so now as a collector, I'm realizing, well, wait a minute. Actually, it'd be kind of cool to have an interesting, significant model from Volkswagen, which really launched their future 50 years ago with this style. And it's a beautiful, interesting car, very fun to drive, GTI, uh, five-speed thing. But it's very hard to find ones that aren't rusted out anymore because they're, they were old, not that valuable, and people didn't take care of them. So like Porsches, I think, are easier to find a good one that's old because people, they've always been valuable. And some of these lesser cars people let them, you know, just ran them into the ground. So it's hard to find a, a great example of some of these things that are, you know, 25, 30, 40 years old. So this is a question I always ask when we talk to people, the collectors, it, it, do your children and your family, do they enjoy cars like you do? Or is it, is it just your passion in the family? Well, yes. I mean, your kids obviously had the coolest taxi to school <laughs> ever. I've ever heard. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, it, it's interesting. My I have two girls, and so they're both trained drivers, trained by me. I've been instructing for decades, and uh, they don't aspire to race or necessarily do high performance, but they aspire to be competent drivers. And I think they actually appreciate these cars that I have and enjoy. I let them drive them. They all drive manuals, no problem. It, it's, manual transmission is an interesting security device these days, right? Not everyone can just jump in and drive yeah. a manual. They're not going to steal your your, your yeah. manual transmission car, right? But anyway, yeah. So the kids, the kids uh, think you know I'm funny, and I have interesting cars, and they, they <laughs> you know, they're kind of they're over it. And actually, they like the Scirocco. You know, they just are charmed by that car, and just think it's the coolest thing ever. They're not particularly interested in oh, it's the 959. You know, whatever. They're really not interested in that kind of car. But many of these other cars are, you know, fascinate them as well. Because also, my kids like simpler times, too. They don't really want the modern car with the lane changing, avoidance, this, that, and the other thing. You know, they're, they actually wish that the cars were, you could still buy just a straightforward, simple car. And sadly, that's known as a 90s car anymore. So. I I mean, Dan and I 100% agree. I miss the days when you could pop the hood. You saw where the spark was going, where the gas was coming in, where the exhaust went out. You know, there was no plastic covering the engine. So, you know, so That's I, I agree true. with that 100%. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yep. My first car was an 84 Scirocco. And so I'm, there's there's always part of me who wants to find another one. Yes. And then, you know, you can. Mark the Mark II. Well. Right. So the Mark II Scirocco, I see many more of those when I was searching but it was very difficult to yep. find a Mark One that was still in decent shape. Um, at, yeah, although, it's a better looking car, the Mark One. Yeah. I will say also that when I park it, people are just charmed and always want to stop and talk about it. And almost everybody has a story about, oh, yeah, my girlfriend had a Scirocco, or my boyfriend had a Scirocco, or I had a Scirocco. And so everybody has like a Scirocco story. It's really quite funny. I didn't think it was like so ubiquitous, but actually, you know, it was. There was millions of those <laughs> things out there at one time. So, I mean, when we start talking about the Scirocco, when Dan asked, what, what, what don't you have that you're looking for? Like what, what's on right. the list right now? I mean, not, not to give things away or, or, you know, to give away some of your secrets, but what would you like to see in your garage, I guess? Right. I have decided to focus just to the backdating of the 25 year thing. Cause there's a lot of stuff in Europe that's interesting and cool and relatively in, mm -hmm. inexpensive and importable. So I'm not looking to have, you know, like the next 911 or some McLaren thing. They just don't fascinate me personally because um, I take everyone, all my cars on the track, by the way, and drive them, you know, flat out. It has to work. And um, I know some cars are better than others for these this track purpose. And the, some of the, the 
expensive big cars basically are just sort of, they're not that fun to drive on the track, actually. I'd rather drive my race car if I'm going to do that. Or I also have an Alpha 4C, which the white the white car between the, the black and yes. the blue one, actually. Great and car. I, Love that yeah. car. Yeah. yeah. And I've been dialing that car in so that it fits me and does does just what I want. And I love the carbon tub. You know, it's technically interesting. Uh, I also have a, a Lotus Exige from 2008, which was like a, and it's just a fabulous track day car. And, uh, it, you know, I, I find that any car, what I was taught by Bondron is, well, if you know how to use it fully, that's, that's the joy. It doesn't matter what your lap times are because you're using what you're working with fully. And so, you know, the Alpha 4C is not going to pass a, you know, GT3 down the straightaway because it's, it's 200 horsepower less. But, you know, it's turning incredibly fast lap times and just super rewarding to drive. So I've kind of decided to just settle into like, well, what, what can I use really hard and really have just a great time? So it doesn't need to be extremely fast because where do you stop? You know, it's like the logic yeah. right now is zero to 60 and minus two seconds is where we're headed, right? <laughs> the line is, is yeah. <laughs> and it's, but it's not human. I don't think that it's to scale or human and without the electronics mitigating things, people wouldn't be able to handle that. And it's, it's interesting that they can handle it. And I'm glad that the beautiful cars are made and they're, they're fantastic. I mean, these million dollar thing, you know, it's just incredible what our world is producing and how many people are, can afford to and want to have, you know, amazing things. But uh, if I, if you're an engineer, you're like, well, yeah, but it's kind of over the top. You really can't use it. Why do you have a thing that is just too much? And uh, so I've decided to kind of scale my interest to something that's appropriate to what I'm doing and I'll still just huge amount of fun. So on the car list coming up on the 25 year thing will be the Renault Clio V6, which is a mid-engine. Yeah. Used to have an R5 turbo, which is a wonderful, but it's tur small turbo motor, kind of problematic. And like the Alphas with the V6s and so on, I'm starting enjoying the normally aspirated cars. And again, it's not that fast. It's only 220 or 300 horsepower or something, you know, so it's, it's not going to keep up with the latest of the latest stuff. But I think it's interesting from, from the time and uh, very rewarding to drive. But it's still a couple more years before they can be imported. So yeah, it's such a cool-looking car, too. That's one of my favorite things with the Clio. Yeah. You don't right. expect that car to look like that. Well, and I think, you know, we, we've been talking a lot about this 25-year 20, rule, and I think uh, yeah. it comes up so much in, in, in a lot of the car culture. I think everybody knows about it if you're a JDM fan because everybody's oh, yeah. waiting for the GTRs right. and, the things like, and the R34 to come over here, and, 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 and I, which I think is cool. But back to your, you know, you, you jog my memory and you're talking about these, you know, zero to 60 in under two seconds. Like, I'm impressed when a car can do that and it's a manual because all these cars that can <laughs> yeah. shift in two tenths of a second. I mean, yes, it, it's, you know, there is skill to get in a car and mash the pedal, but. And like you said, be able to be able to get the power down to the ground and be able to go. Like I've been in a in a Tesla Plaid, and yeah. and it left my bladder way all the way back there, you know, which was scary, <laughs> yeah. you know. You, you do it once. But, um, these cars that it, yes, yeah, yes, absolutely. It's I've a one done trick it. pony. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's a one trick pony. So well, it's funny you mentioned that though, because like even uh, the new Mustangs, the new Corvettes. I don't mean the C8. I mean the C7. Yeah. Launch control, manual traction control, and zero to sixty in three and a half four seconds in the in the z06 one if you can get the traction but it'll even tell you if you can get the traction because it has temperature monitoring which was crazy the first time i ever launched or my z06 was like i have no idea how this car is keeping straight because i sure as hell ain't doing it <laughs> <laughs> yeah steering yeah yeah yeah, so, yeah. yeah. well so it's funny it's uh, some there's something for everybody which is good and these are you know functional objects of art and so it's it, you know the supercars as well as the, the lesser cars. And so I think that there's some, you know, these uh, cars that I was pointing out, like the Alpha is, you know, from a design standpoint, to me as a designer, it's very interesting. Nobody has the nerve to do something like what, what they did back then. And so a lot of the cars look relatively generic. So from an aesthetic standpoint, just to sort of own an object and look at it, I find that, you know, there's a lot of derivative design and very, a lot of similarity. The Japanese cars have the problem too, that generally they're not left-hand drive and, that's that's okay, but you know I kind of prefer to have a left-hand drive. And I would one more comment about the, like the Alpha 4C versus the Lotus. 
manual versus uh, paddle shifting. So as a racer, in my Formula 1000, I use a motorcycle motor, and it's using, we have actually a Geartronics thing to manage blipping and flat shifting and things like this. So there's a little bit of help um, to make it shift as fast as it can. But as a driver, if you know what you're doing and you're driving very hard, it's really great to focus on your traction management because you're not distracted by the mechanics of reaching over. Like the 959 coming around the back straight in Portland is a curve, especially in 550 horsepower with the thing that is just like launching uh, itself. And you're having to reach over and shift several times and drive with one hand in a thing that is, you know, really accelerating. And it's kind of nice to actually be able to keep your hands on the wheel and shift as needed and have more gears to work with so that you can manage your, uh, your traction. You know, the Porsche would be better if it had even more gears. But boy, to drive that much power and reach over and shift while trying to shift in turns and through turns, which you have to do in order to stand the boost, it's, it's difficult. And uh, I think that there's a real advantage to driving a, a modern car and keeping your hands on the wheel and focusing on your traction management rather than having, and most people also have not been trained to double clutch and they're hard on the clutches and the gearbox and the synchros, especially if you're braking hard and trying to downshift in an old school car and you weren't trained, which is, you know, who would have trained you, right? I got trained by Bondra, but it was decades ago. <laughs> yeah, it can be done, yeah. but, but it's, and, it, and it, it should be done. <laughs> but the problem is if you're really driving hard and braking hard, you know, and, and having to make downshifts and not kill your gearbox um, with a manual transmission, that's a real technical feat nowadays as well. So I can see there's the manufacturers must be very happy that they're not having clutches and, and trans, you know, transmissions in general getting crushed <laughs> by all their, you know, high horsepower cars because the factory is able to manage all that with electronics and make the driver successful. So I think there's a real advantage for making cars that are fabulous that go super fast, that technology really makes a difference. I, I totally agree. We were just talking about that. Sorry for their audience here. I'll do the, the best editing I can. But if the for the first time in 260 episodes, there's internet gremlins. Yeah, it just keeps dropping gremlins, it randomly so, for yeah. us. So we have a little bit of delay. And a, the internet car world doesn't want Larry's information. I know. Out there. They're like, so, no, you must buy modern. You cannot have fun while buy you drive modern your cars. cars. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we were so. just saying like, yeah, fast. If you want fast lap times and yeah. to focus on the driving, then yeah, a sequential transmission or paddles is going to keep your Focus in the right area with your hands in the right place, and you're going to be able to put down better lap times. It's true. Yeah. Although I may not have as much fun. I've, I've, Nick and I have talked about this a lot on the show with different guests. Where, yeah, I'm absolutely faster. When I had my GTR, my Turbo S, like I was clearly a better, faster driver. But was I having as much fun? No. 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 My S2000, my C6, my C7, my old Chiraco, and I was just ringing it out through every gear was fun. Yeah. <laughs> and it didn't have to. Like, I mean, I'm not on the track all the time, so it, it actually. I miss those cars. Those the craziness of taking a hand, like Larry said, taking a hand off the wheel and having to shift in the middle of a corner. That's yeah, exactly. And that's blip your downshifts. Yeah. And now yeah. the C7 did auto auto blipping on the downshift. Yeah, it was cheating. Yeah, yeah. it was totally no. cheating. But it was more fun. <laughs> I remember the S2000 because it revs so high. Yeah, that was a fun one to sure. downshift on. Just whoom, <laughs> you know, sure. had that motorcycle feel to it. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah. Well, Larry, um, and I think when people go on their lunch, no, no, go ahead, go ahead. I was just going to say, when, when, when you, you know, I like to go on, I imagine other people do go on a sunny day lunch run up in the hills or whatever, since I live in Portland, there's lots of hills and windy roads. And, you know, there's a tremendous satisfaction in being able to be incredibly smooth and do all those double clutch downshift, you know, drive the car. So it's not like on the track where you're driving, you know, flat out at the traction limit, but it's just a whole nother craft, craftsmanship, say of driving. And so I'd love to think that a lot of Avant's members would be uh, excited about, you know, either having that craft or learning how to and just owning that skill of being able to drive a car really clean and perfectly, even if it's an old, you know, manual transmission thing that you have to understand and work with. Oh, absolutely. Well, I mean, that, that skill, like you said, it, it's the best theft deterrent in the world is having a manual car. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. You have one of my yeah. favorite roads out by you. That's uh, uh, from uh, Clats County from 47 to 202 out to Cannon Beach. I take the back way out there. Oh, man. Oh, is that like the mm -hmm. logging? Like the nice. logging? Yeah. Yep. And yeah. And then, then you go cut through 53 to yeah. Nihalem. Like there's just so many. There's everybody, the east side of the state's even better. Mm -hmm. But the west, the west side coming out to the coast, that road that gets through there, if it's a nice day and you can hit it up at like five in the morning, 
and so you don't have to get stuck behind some truck or something. Yeah, like that, a long that road is yeah. heaven, Portland yeah. listeners. Yeah. If you have it. So yeah. Right. Well, Larry, um, you know, we want to really thank you for taking time. I know you did a, a giant tour with the Avance crew down there in the mil- in the beginning of October and showed off the collection. But we really want to thank you for taking your time and, and talking to us about, I mean, like you said, a, a topic that I didn't think we'd be on as far as this 25-year rule, 25-year rule and, and the gray cars and things like that. And really, I, I, I really want to say thank you for being the type of collector that, that drives his cars and knows his cars and, and really loves it and shares a passion for the world and, and was willing to share that with us today yeah i would love to come down there and do this in person with you honestly yeah. this would be really fun the internet connection would be better it's true yeah. <laughs> invited and i look forward to it yes absolutely yeah. i look forward to that visit okay absolutely and there's more than we've talked about <laughs> well and 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 larry what we, we want we definitely want to have you on the show again and like maybe what we can do is figure it out where dan and i can uh, well i mean reason for a drive sometime right heck okay. yeah absolutely drive yeah. down and yeah that sounds so. good to me no no i'd be happy happy for you guys to come down and visit anytime thank you Well, for this episode of the Avance Podcast, as always, I'm Nick. I'm Dan, and don't just get there. Enjoy the drive.